This is Constantinople, great conversations in a great city. Are you trying to cultivate wisdom, virtue, and joy in your life and in the lives of those around you? You're in good company. Welcome to Constantinople. I'm your host, Megan Muller. This time I'm joined by Mr. Galen Nickel. Hello. Mr. Zach Harris. Hello. And Mr. John Muller. Hello. And today, uh, the reason I have these three people with me is because they are known on our campus by a silly but earnest nickname. Uh, these are the Star Lords of the St. Constantine School. So this is the Star Lords episode. And uh, we are not here to discuss Marvel movies. Uh, this is because these are the three gentlemen who have been teaching astronomy, varying grade levels, on our campus. So we have a pre-K through college program here and um, students at varying points in their educational path at St. Constantine um, uh, are studying astronomy as part of their uh, scientific uh, learning. So uh, I just want to talk about what we do, uh, when we do it, for which students, and why. So I guess I'd like to kick us off with a sort of general uh, conversation about the place that astronomy once held in like regular life and, and then still holds in my heart well and then in academia and then sort of the the status of things generally speaking as far as astronomy like education that has to do with astronomy goes now so uh maybe this maybe i can start with mr nickel i know you teach a lot of uh, mythology related to the stars in the class that you teach for is it our third graders third is that grade. right so um, you want to just sort of kick us off maybe with a, if you were a person who was alive 3,000, 2,500 years ago, uh, uh, or yeah, well, yeah, so it, I'm sure it, it continues to change <laughs> and we should talk about it all the way up, but sort of like what was, uh, how conversant were people with the heavens? A whole lot more than we are now, vastly more than anyone post invention of the lit city lights. Um, it's, it's a hilarious thing, teaching astronomy. I mean, first teaching you know, about stars beyond the sun in the daytime when third grade traditionally meets. You um, guys don't meet in the middle of the night? Not usually, no. no. Uh, but also then in, in a city um, where you go out at night, and there are stars that you can see. But I have to convince the students of that because if you go out and just kind of glance up casually, you're like, yeah, I think that there is a star that I can see at night, maybe. Uh, and when, when you know where to look for them and you know what you're looking for, then you can see many, many more. But largely, we have cut ourselves off from the heavens. Um, and so it's a, it's a process of... Uh, helping them orient towards rediscovering them in a way that would be very, very, very simple for anyone not that long ago to simply walk outside and be like, oh, yes, wow, stars. Right, and you have to help them know what to look for so much more than I think in the past um, because, you know, we read in the Psalms, for example, the heavens declare the glory of God, and if you feel that strongly and know what to look for, uh, you, you can see it immediately, right? And especially if you're out 
where we go with the seniors to West Texas at you know, mm-hmm. Fort Davis National Park and uh, the McDonald Observatory, that kind of comes through more quickly. But if you tell students that, the heavens declare the glory of God, and then you walk outside <laughs> at night in the middle of Houston, huh? Right? A it, little it, less whelming. It's, yeah, <laughs> it's less obvious. Underwhelming. Um, yeah, right. And so giving them a way to enter into that truth because the heavens haven't stopped declaring the glory of God, but we have, as you said, in so many ways, cut ourselves off from immediately seeing that that is true. And it's a real loss. Um, and, and this is, I think, informs so much of why we do what we do and how we do it, um, because we want to help recapture that and re-enchant the cosmos for our students, because it's only in their minds and immediate perception that this has ceased to be true. It hasn't ceased to be true, in fact. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, one of the, the joys that I experience in the teaching the seniors um, is that they are a little more capable of just going out at night and looking at the sky. Uh, and sometimes they come into class, and some students in particular, and they're like, oh, I saw this last night, or was this that thing? Uh, was this Aldebaran or whatever? Because they've realized that in, even in the city at their houses, mm-hmm. they can walk out and see enough of the stars to make out some of the major constellations. Um, yeah. Which is really yeah, just a joy when they come in and share those things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that, so, I mean, maybe for our readers who might be less familiar, readers, <laughs> listeners, who are less familiar uh, with kind of classical education, in the trivium and quadrivium, astronomy has, of course, a place of prominence um, as kind of the capstone of the quadrivium. It's the art which, above all, kind of incorporates the study of number in space and time, right? Um, And so we're thinking about the art that can really help us engage with everything that classical education in the trivium and quadrivium is working towards. Um, And it's, it's the art that, you know, for, for Plato is one of the, the ways that we can know that a good and perfect being might be out there in the universe orchestrating things um, for our own good as well, right? Which sounds like a strange thing to assert that Plato might think, but in the Timaeus, uh, the, the main speaker of the dialogue says that you know in, inside, the emotions of our soul are in turmoil. We are disordered. If we would be ordered, which he recommends we do, we should look to the heavens and look to the, as he calls them, perfect motions of the heavenly bodies, of the stars, um, where day after day, night after night, year after year, they keep the dance, so to speak. Um, And there's this idea that I think is not just characteristic of Plato, but of so much of the ancient and medieval tradition, that that order out there can be observed and contemplated and therefore kind of imprinted on us internally. Yeah, I actually brought up that exact passage from Plato, from the Timaeus in class today with the college students. Um, we were just starting to dip into Ptolemy, who was, one of, who was the culmination of um, ancient Greek astronomy. Uh, and in the first chapter of his most influential work, the Almagest, um, he outlines the uh, divisions of philosophy and places astronomy within uh, within theoretical philosophy, particularly the mathematical branch. Um, and then as he's kind of ending that 
discussion of philosophy, he uh, says something very similar to what Plato says, or what Timaeus says. Uh, and I, I, I have to think that he probably had read the Timaeus and was thinking mm-hmm. about that. Maybe not. Um, but he, he talks about the, the how studying astronomy can help us to bring, by studying, by studying astronomy, seeing the order, the, the harmony in the heavens, um, it can help make men virtuous and good. Um, and the students were really blown away by that idea uh, that looking at the heavens, looking at the sky can help make them better people. <laughs> Which is the thing I, I love. I mean, we talk so much about the, you know, as the, the astronomy as the capstone, as the peak of the quadrivium. Uh, I relish getting to teach it as a thing for third graders and I have a yeah. secret yearning in my heart that like we should also have a pre-K astronomy <laughs> and, and, and it's a, a something yeah. of Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> um, as as it's such a beautiful way and such an important necessary way of beginning the orientation of yourself towards the natural world um, it works out really well in third grade as mm-hmm. sort of like a peak time of kids having the you know very kind of unself-aware openness of just like I have a question about Mars that we're not talking about a little even a little bit right now but I really want to ask it um and their willingness to ask that without being like oh but wait what do people think about me but then also being able to grapple with you know harder things more than than earlier on um but as it's so easy when you know you're in in a classroom teaching. Okay, I'm teaching a science class to get into the zone of like, ah, well, here are you know the science facts that you learn, and here's that you end up with a, like a very sterile methodology and a sterile vision of the natural world. Which then later on, I've had so many times that you know I've taken a class, and then somewhere near the end of the class, I'm like, oh, also, you know, the natural world. It's Incredible! It's beautiful. You you know should see God in every blade of grass. Um, so let's let's do a project about that. Like let's, let's read an article about that, and then you know mm-hmm. we'll discuss it at the end. And it it feels like a, oh well you know we got to cap it on, rather than the starting point of the richness of of the created world. Uh, mm-hmm. So it should be the capstone, but it should also be the inception point. Right. Astronomy. Yeah. No, that's right. They shouldn't only start doing astronomy as 12th graders, right? And so I love that we have the third grade version. I think we absolutely should do pre-K. Because um, <laughs> I do that with my pre-K children. Um, it's not a class, but we go outside at night and talk about the moon and talk about the various constellations that they can identify. And they love it. Um, and I can tell that it actually matters to them and isn't just a novelty. Um, so. Maybe Galen, then that makes me wonder, like, can you describe a bit more at length, like, what are some of the things that you do in the third grade class to kind of help with that? I think you described a way this shouldn't go, right? <laughs> this, like, you know, mm-hmm. let's cram as many uh, facts as we can about this discipline. And then, since we're Christians, oh, by the way, remember that it's all wonderful and glorious and God <laughs> is there too, right? Um, mm-hmm. And I think you're proposing an alternative, and I'm just curious to hear that described more. So the structure of the class in the third grade um, is, is, is first off, like finding a cycle. There's so much of astronomy, of, of studying the heavens, that's finding the cycles of the seasons, cycles of the years, cycles of the epochs, um, cycles of, of the lives, um, which is, you know, 
a little hard in living in a place that doesn't have seasons. Um, we're like, oh yeah, there's a cycle, and they're like, what? Um, but we, we throughout the week, so we'll have you know um, our you know one day of the week that what we do is um, observe the heavens as best we can in like a, a darkened classroom, projecting around the stars, having time that's just looking at even just projected stars and constellations um, with music that is inspired by it. So we'll like we'll listen through a whole planet suite. Um, this week we listened to a piece about Olympus Mons on Mars that was written in the 70s by a, a rock jazz group that's strangely, weirdly beautiful and haunting. Um, and it's, so, you know, various levels of things. Uh, and then moving from that into having some key of things later in the week that's about um, following a journey uh, through the solar system. So we'll start by talking a lot about stars, um, about the chemistry and physics of what happens in the heart of a star, and then following that not as an isolated thing, but following the effects of fusion in the heart of the sun through the solar system um, hmm. and, and the interconnectedness of it. Um, and then through that, pushing them to find ways that they can explore that, those sorts of ideas and principles uh, in, you know, on Earth, at three o'clock in the afternoon in Houston, um, whether that's you know physical exploration of you know physicsy things or um, artistic exploration of it, uh, so so tracing the path from seeing the stars, uh, having the first response, um, hearing myths. We'll read myths as we um, discuss them. Uh, from there to throwing in you know additional details and. Um, recent, as in, you know, in the last thousand years, uh, discoveries of, of um, space and of physics and culminating in their, their own explanation of that. One of the things that this is reminding me is just that um, when science is done from a place of wonder, it's amazing what people are willing to put up with as far as like facts to be memorized and math problems to do and problems yeah. to solve. Um, uh, because... Uh, persistence in any subject, but particularly in the sciences, like wonder and curiosity and amazement, uh, when cultivated simultaneously with some of these more technical elements, mm. create stamina um, for pursuing a subject matter so that you don't feel like when you finish third grade and you memorized all the names of the planets, you can sort of like dust your hands off and be like, I am now completely ready to go with the rest of my life, having plumbed the depths of the heavens and outer space, because I now know everything I'm supposed to know, um, which means that we can get catch students again. So at our school, we they take astronomy in third grade as their science, um, but they, they take science every year, so they're doing earth science and other things in, in the meantime, but then in their senior year of high school, they're taking this capsule an astronomy class, which obviously is still cultivating wonder because it right. allows people to persist when they're feeling burnt out or discouraged, and senioritis is raging, you know, through the school like a like a wildfire, um, like clockwork. Um, and then again, what uh, what what grade level is it in the college? Uh, Zach? It will be freshman. It's okay, part of the the freshman sequence. They take uh, their first semester Euclidean geometry, and then the second semester. Um, of course, we call it the classical cosmos, which uh, involves a lot of astronomy, but 
examining not only the technical aspects, but also some of the uh, philosophical aspects and its place in literature as well. So how much of what all of you, what all three of you have done, um, would a parent from the outside say, well, this sounds like a literature class, or this sounds like a philosophy <laughs> class, or this sounds like a theology class, and then which part would parents be like, okay, now, or, or even a math class. I think yeah. sometimes people are surprised by, oh, this science has a lot of geometry in it, mm -hmm. um, or trigonometry, right? right? Um, mm -hmm. Is it, I, I assume, I, I think I might know the answer to this question, but is it an unhealthy desire in the sciences to separate meaningful study of <laughs> mythology, literature, music, and then mathematics with what most people would consider to be the sciency bit? Is the yes. right answer, in fact, all the things you described <laughs> yes. rolled into one? Well, yeah, I think that's that's really helpful to kind of draw that out a bit Schools more. and parents right. find this challenging because right. uh, it's easy to sell people on teaching mechanical engineering. It's easy to sell parents on physics. It's easy to sell parents on chemistry, even though they many of them don't believe their children are going to become chemists. It's still a rote fact in American education that mm -hmm. a high school student will have taken chemistry, right? Uh, but astronomy, which was a rote fact, like everyone was going to take yeah. astronomy if you were educated. Now, not everyone was educated. That was the kicker, right? Um, if you were lucky enough to go to school, you were going to be instructed in astronomy, but that mm. fell by the wayside. I don't know how long ago. Maybe you guys know. Interestingly, like just to the point of uh, part of what you were saying, we have to make sure we separate astronomy from like star lore mythology and kind of practical astronomy that would have absolutely been for navigation and uh, farming by people who didn't receive a full education trivium and quadrivium. Right. But then, of course, if you were educated in that way, you would study astronomy at a very high level. Um, so I, I don't know. It's interesting because like, only now do we have situations where it's possible to go through your entire education and maybe your entire life being ignorant of star lore and of the scientific discipline of astronomy. Used to be, if you didn't have the chance to undergo the scientific discipline, you at least knew star lore and probably some practical astronomy if, right. it, if it was relevant, which in frequently agrarian societies, um, it was, right? But now you, can, you, you don't quote unquote need it, um, which is a great loss. Yeah, just a small example of what you're talking about there, the, how just the common person might have been familiar with some astronomy. Um, w one of the signs that the Nile was going to, ri was going to flood in Egypt was that the, the star cluster, the Pleiades, would rise right before the sun came up. And that was an indicator, oh, it's the time of year when the Nile's about to flood. Right? And that was just like a very simple thing that affected, like that knowing about was helpful and affected so many people's lives. Um, so anyways, that was just an example of the, the practical aspect there that most people would have known. Yeah. Um, but I was thinking as y'all were talking about that, the, the seniors sometimes have given the, the nickname uh, Great Books Astronomy or Astronomy Great Books to the our high school senior uh, astronomy course mm -hmm. um, because it involves so many of those different elements of mythology and philosophy, reading the Timaeus, as well as the technical aspects of classical astronomy and some of the um, the know, basics of contemporary modern astronomy as well. Right, and so we're 
trying to engage with a discipline where it's actually appropriate to read Plato, Aristotle, Ptolemy, Dante, right. and then Einstein and Newton, right. Newton Copernicus, and Copernicus, yeah. right? And um, are you C.S. Lewis? Yeah, <laughs> C.S. Lewis, right? Talking about the discarded image, yeah. and I would be curious maybe to hear uh, both or either of you kind of defend a bit more the, th mm -hmm. the thing that we do, which is study ancient and medieval and contemporary, right? We mm -hmm. don't just study ancient and medieval. Oh yeah, in the dark ages, wasn't everyone like totally wrong about everything? <laughs> and, they thought the, and they thought the world was flat and like, okay. you know, geocentrism and- Mrs. Muller We knows. know so much more now than we used to about, about okay. the world. You made your point. <laughs> you made your point. No one's just trying to make John angry. <laughs> I'm trying to make all three of you angry. There are, in fact, I'm pretty sure, more flat earthers now uh, uh, than at any time in, in the past. Perhaps the entire history of the world combined. Yeah. See Aristotle and then Ptolemy revisiting Aristotle saying, yeah. the heavens are spherical. And the earth, the earth too, is spherical. spherical. The earth is in proportion to the heavens yeah. as a point uh, right. in relation to a sphere, right? There was this idea of the very, very, very minuscule size of the earth in comparison mm -hmm. to the heavens itself. Um, there was absolutely the idea of the sphericity of the earth. Um, right. But, of course, there were differences. Uh, the idea that the heavens themselves were contained in a celestial sphere, that's, of course, different. Um, but yes, Megan yeah. is just and trying to get my goat, and it worked. <laughs> um, if we want to devote another podcast entirely to modern misconceptions about the medieval period, then I'm so, so ready for that. I, Down. I, was, just, I was just sort of going off of what you were, I think you were about to talk about, which was like a modern, apologia for studying what mm. if you're not careful everybody now believes was just incredibly flawed science like the, right. the, the right. At, at worst people say why would we learn bad science we know so much better now because mm -hmm. people both don't understand how just how right ancient and medieval astronomers right. were able to be without the technology that we have now so maybe right. talk a little bit about that like what are the tr what are the great big truths that can yeah. still be discovered I have a lot I can say about that, um, <laughs> but one of the, the one of the thoughts that comes to mind, actually, drawing on the on the Timaeus, um, in the, in the, the, the Timaeus uh, by Plato, he, Timaeus's job in the conversation is to lay out a story of um, basically of the creation of the universe of sorts, um, and he does this. And then he stops partway through and he says, oh, actually, I need to go back to the beginning and start over because I have a, a better, a more likely way to tell the story. And he kind of yeah. makes this distinction between eternal things, which we can um, say we can we judge something by whether it's true or not. And then also giving accounts of changeable things, which would include um, the, the earth, right, the natural world that we're familiar with. And uh, the, the, the judge of whether an account is good or not is, is whether it's likely or not. And a, a better account is a one that's just more convincing, more likely. Right. Um, and that seems to be the kind of thing that, that science does. It is trying to tell a story about the natural world, and it's searching for the one that's most convincing. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean that a previous account is false. Perhaps we just find it less convincing now. Mm -hmm. um, and, it, and the... Applying that to uh, astronomy and the view of like 
our commonly held view of the world and the geocentrism versus heliocentrism, um, we would say, well, people came to find heliocentrism a more convincing story for a number of reasons, which are good reasons. Um, but then later on, like in the 20th century, people became convinced that actually that's not the most convincing story. Uh, because if you look at the theory of relativity, the sun isn't the center of anything, really. I mean, kind of the center of the solar system. But um, yeah, and so now we have another convincing story that we hold up as like, this is the most convincing thing. But it's different to say that that's the way things really are, because all three of those accounts uh, can explain the same, many of the same phenomena. Um, mm-hmm. With new data, perhaps we know that, okay, there's some things that this previous account hasn't accounted for mm-hmm. because they didn't have the data for it. But perhaps we could go back and find a way to make it work. Right. Uh, it just might be more complicated and less convincing to us. Yeah, what will the likely story be in 100 years Yeah, is a great question. And I can absolutely live with the fact that it will be different than something that we're saying right now. Right. But it's because I've been kind of trained in this Timaeus model to say what we assert must be the most likely story we can make. It must be right. the best model we can make. No less likely than any story any man living can come up with, I think is what he says. But we have to recognize that it is not itself spoken from certain knowledge. Right. right? Which is right. seems and to be a very healthy way of approaching yeah, the scientific endeavor. <laughs> All but. real scientists I know <laughs> tend to approach it that way. Right. It's kind of people who are taught bad science in <laughs> school who tend to think who think of it as synonymous with just fact, um, mm-hmm. and that seems to be where we get into trouble with what you were talking about. These these models, these uh, likely stories, geocentrism, heliocentrism, relativity and whatever is next, that it's when we mistake those for final fact that we get into trouble. I want to ask you each a question as we're wrapping up. Um, We're doing this all in the context of a school, so what do we hope a child or a student, a young, it could be a young adult at this point, but what is our hope that a young student is like for the better because they've studied astronomy? What changes in them? What do we hope to see as teachers? Why are we doing this? I'm and paralyzed by how many ways there are to answer <laughs> um, I Maybe I'll just start, and I might end up coming back after some other uh, people have had a chance to say something. But I, I truly believe that this is one of the primary ways in the created order for us to cultivate wonder and a love of beauty um, and a love of truth, really, because we're, when we're studying astronomy, even if we begin in kind of this, wow, we, you know, if we're studying with Plato and Einstein and Ptolemy and the rest that we were talking about, we also get to some of the most difficult uh, mathematical and, and scientific concepts you can grapple with. Um, and so knowing that it can encompass both of those experiences, this immediate awe that a, that a very small child can um, have the experience of, and this extremely profound, difficult thought that comes only after years of great study. Um, those, are, those are kind of at least a couple of the things that 
that I would hope to see if a student were able to be with us for their entire K-12 experience. Because I think you do have to put at least that much time into it. But certainly the wonder. I think, I think that appreciation can be given as a gift uh, almost immediately because it's been given to us. Yeah, I, I, for, for me as well, that's kind of the primary thing. I, I, I want them to carry with them like, intellectual knowledge about the heavens, um, but most importantly, I want their hearts to be touched and to be changed, and I think the wonder does that. And, and as, as John said, it, the, the hard work is part of that. Um, that in the Timaeus, the, what we were referencing earlier about of how he, he says that observing the ordered revolutions of the heavens can help us bring order to our disordered, disordered revolutions in our souls. Um, he makes reference to math in that passage and, mm -hmm. and doing calculation about the things in the heavens. Right, So it, it, it's not just walking outside and being like, wow, look, there's lots of bright dots up there, right? which is part of it. Like the, It's not just what happens in the classroom, of course. Like Going outside and actually seeing what you're learning about is, is really important, which is why we take the, the students to West Texas. Um, but it, it's both of those things together, I think, that uh, they, can, they can open the heart and transform the heart. Um, and then the, the intellectual knowledge is, is important as well. Um, but we know that a lot of things that we study, we don't remember all the details, but rather the big picture and, and how that can, can mold us and form us. Um, yeah, so that's what I want them to carry with them as well, is that the transformation of the heart. I, I would echo that. I, I was talking with one of my other classes today about the profound value of being an amateur, of being <laughs> one who loves a thing um, and loves it well. And that's, that's what we want out of the class to teach them, to help them to love rightly and love well. And there's not a part of their life that that won't change. And there's a, a joy I, I've experienced in my own life, especially since I began teaching astronomy. And I already did this sometimes, but even more so started looking at the sky um, and paying attention to it. And it's, it's a, it's, transformed me, it's affected me. And there's a great joy in being able to walk outside and look at the sun or the moon or the stars and one, recognize them, but then also to understand why they are where they are today or tonight, why they're moving in that way, why the moon was here a few days ago and now it's over there. Um, there's a, just a joy and a wonder that comes in having that awareness. I'm, I'm grateful to be teaching this yeah, I think, so you both have been talking about love and joy, and that was kind of coming back to my mind. Um, you know, and on a podcast like this, I'm in danger of just maybe gushing too much about <laughs> the non-mathematical stuff and the non-scientific <laughs> stuff, and maybe that will worry some folks. But I think, actually, this is a discipline where love is so often characteristic of what we study and what we observe, and I mean that at kind of every level. So there's the love that we can experience, the joy of seeing light shine in the darkness and see that there is order to it, not just in the arrangement of the constellations, um, which of course thought on how that comes to be the case has changed, right? right. Um, we don't think that all of those stars are equidistant um, from the Earth anymore. Um, but that doesn't change the fact that from Earth, 
we see Orion just as Homer did, um, which he attests to in the Iliad. Uh, and so knowing that we can look up and know that story and love that story um, is, is one level. But then there's also the, the level where you begin to realize, you know, kind of again with the psalmist, when I look at the sun and the moon and the stars of the sky, uh, arranged by your hand, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you have created him? Um, and it's just this, I think we should, through wonder, be brought to a realization of divine love through a contemplation of the heavens, right? Because they attest, um, if we have eyes to see, they attest to that love given to us through creation, um, which kind of just endlessly unfolds as you keep studying. Yeah, that's how Dante ends the Divine Comedy. Right. The love that moves the sun and the other stars. <laughs> Dante was a very good astronomer. <laughs> he was. He, he knew his astronomy very well. Yeah, there's even some really cheeky, no pun intended, stuff about the equator and the location of hell and Satan. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. But far more important is where you ended it, yeah. with paradise. <laughs> <laughs> Right, that stars isn't that the last word in every single volume yeah, of the comedy? Yeah, so yeah, 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 some of the like mathematical elements sure. and things like that, and then maybe we do one that's also just mostly about like mythological and I don't, I don't know. There's, there's a lot to a lot to talk about, and I think it's something that I was neglected in my own education, and I'm sure a lot of people, adults, feel the same way. And I know all of you had some degree of uh, understanding of astronomy before taking on your roles teaching in these classes, but. Um, I'm sure you also have all learned a heck of a lot just as you've you know been teaching in these, in these roles for so many years. So there's a lot there's a lot we can learn from all three of you. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you for visiting Constantinople. Constantinople is a podcast of the St. Constantine School. To learn more about St. Constantine Schools nationwide, St. Constantine College, and our annual vision conference in downtown Houston, please visit stconstantine.org.